She was known as Queen, Queen Esther, at least that's what history remembered her as. But she was born and known more commonly as Orphan Esther. She was the Hebrew orphan child. Both parents gone, living in a foreign land of obscurity. By all human rights, had no chance to make it. But God had other plans. What we come to this morning in the book of Esther is a, really, it's a perfect plot for a Hollywood movie. It has all the beautiful women, the crisis, the prominence of the greatest ruler on earth at the time, King Xerxes, his rightful wife, Queen Vashti, who falls out of favor with the king and is disposed of. The plot thickens as the king takes a two-year search to gather all the most beautiful women in the land and have them primp for two years. Two years of seaweed body wraps, of mud facials, of those uh, sliced cucumbers on their eyes, those hot rocks on their backs. How do I know all this? It's not by experience, believe me. Then the plot thickens when the antagonist, Haman, hatches a plot to eradicate all Jews. In the middle of this, of all the women in the land, a Jewess is chosen as queen, the orphan Esther. Against all odds. By all rights, she should never have been selected. Then the edict is passed that the king's edict will eradicate all Jews. The cousin of the new queen, Esther, Mordecai, comes to the defense of the Jews. He was an advisor to King Xerxes and appeals to Esther. Who knows? But God may have raised you up for such a time as this. And he appeals to the queen to use her influence with the king to change the edict. Now, that's the crisis of the first three chapters. Chapter four is the appeal of Mordecai to his cousin, Queen Esther. When the appeal is made at first, she tries to blow it off. And he says, don't think that just because you're the queen that your life is going to be spared. Now, if you remain silent, and I love this, God will raise up from somewhere else. Someone who will be used 
to change the king's mind. Now, Mordecai is not listed in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, but he's there in spirit. That took faith. I mean, a lesser man would have appealed completely different and said, look at Esther, you're our only hope. If you don't do it, nobody's going to do it. But that would have been manipulative, and God is not manipulative. So God, through Mordecai, gave Esther the right of decision. And the second time, she heard the voice differently. And she said, I'll do it. And if I perish, I perish. Now, If you were going to erect a movie set, you would start with the king's throne room. No one could gain access unless they had a personal invitation from the king. No one. There were never surprise visitors. The second set you might build is a 75-foot tall gallows made out of wood that Haman erected to kill Mordecai on. Third set, it would be the the, the spa where the harem hung out, where Esther was being prepared, and where all of her entourage waited on her hand and foot. Then there's the garden. It was the Institute of Chicago that got permission from Iran to excavate Xerxes' castle. And archaeologists have uncovered two and a half acre large palace. The foundation of the palace was 50 feet thick of solid stone that they brought in for the foundation. Two and a half acres. Some of the largest, most beautiful, ornate marble columns ever found were in this castle. They had chairs made out of gold that have been found. All the excavation from Xerxes' castle fills two large rooms in the Louvre in Paris today. So we know a whole lot about the ornate and the lavish and opulence of this. But all that would go into the movie. But the hinge in the book, and the the book bears several features that make it unique. It's one of the only books in the Bible that the entire book from beginning to end follows a single plot. It's one of only two books in the Bible named after a woman. And it's the only book in the Bible that does not mention the name God anywhere in it. Isn't that amazing? But immediately, what you discover in studying the book is it's so brilliantly written that the reason God is not mentioned is to draw more attention to God by his silence than if his name was included. Matthew Henry, the great Matthew Henry, many of us have read his commentaries, he said, the name of God is missing, but the finger of God is not. It is full, it is a book full of divine coincidences. Chapter 1, it's no mere coincidence that the queen falls out of favor with the king. 
chapter 2. It's no mere coincidence that of all the women the king could have selected to replace Vashti, he chose the orphan Jewess. Three, it was no coincidence that her uncle was Mordecai. Four, on the night before the queen was to make her appeal to the king, the night before, he could not sleep. He was restless. No mere coincidence. Coincidence, divine coincidence number five. When he couldn't sleep, he opens the annals of his empire. And of all the places he could have turned, he turns to the page that documents how Mordecai foiled an assassination attempt on his life that he never even knew about. So immediately, what's going on is under the surface, the antagonist Haman is trying to kill Mordecai. That night before the queen is to appeal to the king, he can't sleep. He reads how Mordecai, the guy Haman's trying to kill, saved his life. And he spends the rest of his sleepless night putting together thoughts of how he can honor Mordecai. Divine coincidence number six. When Esther said, if I perish, I perish, that was no exaggerated expression. Because she had decided, in order to get an, uh, an audience with the king, she needed to just show up, uninvited. That was a capital crime. Not even the queen could do such a thing. But immediately, and no, no mere coincidence, God gave her favor in his eyes. And as he saw her, it had been more than a month since they'd been together. She put on her best outfit. It says that. It doesn't call it an outfit, but I forget what it calls it. But it's what it means. You can only imagine how she was looking that day. He took one look and he says to himself, Nice. Very nice. And he immediately reaches for his scepter, holds it out in her direction, which means you may approach the chair. She kneels down. He places the scepter somewhere, shoulder, head, whatever. And he says, he was so overwhelmed that he says, I'll give you anything up to half of my kingdom. He was swept off his feet. Now, the plot thickens. Here we've got this edict from the king to kill all the Jews, including this beautiful woman. And now the king holds out the scepter. I'll give you anything up to half of your kingdom. But she's patient. She takes her time. She says, well, here's what I'd like to do. I want to fix you a banquet. And I want to invite Haman, that dirty dog. I want to invite Haman. And the king says, well, sure, then you'll tell me what you want. So they come, and, and Haman now is, is overinflated. His ego is like a, a blimp. 
He's full of hot air and floating 50 feet off the ground. In plain view, he's strutting. And they sit down and they eat together. And the king, again, a second time, what is it you want? I'll give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she says, well, let's just take our time with this. She, she was just letting it simmer nicely. She was stirring in a few more ingredients, heightening the level of anticipation. She says, let me throw you another banquet. The one I gave you yesterday was fine, but I want to give you another one, even better. And I just want Haman, that dirty dog, to be the only one who is invited. And he goes home and tells his, his wife, I'm the only one that the queen is inviting. And he dresses up to the nines. He gets in out his best chariot and is driven to the king's palace. And he has this 75 foot tall gallows built because he's going to kill Mordecai. Now remember, that night the king has a dream. And, or rather, he, he wakes up in, and, and can't sleep and opens the annals and there discovers the reality that Mordecai had saved his life. So when the, the Haman comes, the king asks Haman, what should I do for a man who would lay down his life for me, who is favored in my eyes above everyone else? And Haman's thinking, oh boy, he's talking about me. I'm not making this up. It's right there. He says, well, you should honor him. You, you should give him the royal robes. You should give him some land. And you should put your signet ring on his finger and, and name a day after him and you know, have a parade. And, and he says, you're right. Right now, Haman, go get Mordecai. I mean, this is too, you, you can't make this stuff up. Instantly, Haman knew his fate. Mordecai comes. And the king says, take off that royal garment and put it on Mordecai. So Haman has to honor Mordecai. Then, now the third time, the king says to Queen Esther, the orphan Hebrew child, what is it I can do for you, darling, up to giving you half of my kingdom? Now, this is the third time he said it. If a king says it once, it was enough. But he says it three times. I mean, that seals the deal. There's no backing out now. And he said, as she says to him, there's a man who has plotted to kill me and my family and Mordecai. And the king becomes irate. Who would do such a thing? That person must be killed. And it was Haman. Well, Haman must be killed. How do we do it? Well, uh, sir, there's a gallows that's been built. 75 feet tall. Kill him on it. What a reversal. Then the king takes off his signet ring and puts it on the finger of Mordecai. 
Now that's some story. It goes on to say that there were non-Jews from the nations who became Jews because of the favor they were under. It says the fear of the Jews gripped the land. And that day the hand of God was shown, though His name was never mentioned. It became the celebration of the Hebrew day Purim, which, by the way, will be celebrated this coming year on March 7th as a great day of celebration. But from the book of Esther, if I may, as we come down the stretch here, I want to just make some application for our lives today. Application number one is God uses people. Don't underestimate the role that people play in the works of God. Often, we as Christians, and and it makes me feel awkward when I hear Christians apologizing for their humanity and saying things like, oh, I didn't do it, it was all God. Well, I know there's a time to give credit to God, and we all, at the end of the day, ought to give it all. It all goes back to Him. I trust we all know that. But you and I are not irrelevant in the process. It's fitting that we clap for David, Maffei, and Fadi on the beautiful song that they brought because they put a lot into that. That was an offering. Now, we're clapping for God, ultimately, but we're clapping for them, and it's okay to clap for them. Honor to where honor is due. And the book of Esther stands, if no other Bible book does, Esther does, that God uses people. Now at the same time, Mordecai was right when he said to Esther, if you remain silent, God will through some other means save the Jews. But who knows that at this time you were raised up for such a time as this. The second message from the book of Esther is don't blame your past. Today there's so much counseling and psychology and sociology and and even our, our legal system at times seems to build into it excuses of past behavior and we keep excusing each other. If Esther tells us anything... It's that we are not prisoners of our past. Esther was born an orphan child in a foreign land. She had nothing going for her, humanly speaking. But God had plans for Esther. And who knows but that you may be the next Esther. And I say that to men and women. We certainly take heroes of Scripture that were men and apply their virtues to women. We as men need to sit under the virtue of Queen Esther. You see, God has a way. Now listen to me carefully. God has a way of leading all of us into our, for such a time as this moment. And let me tell you something about our, for such a time as this moment. It may not be what we would have ever chosen for ourselves. Some of us right now may not be about to save an empire or a nation the way Queen Esther was, but God has no little assignments. 
And some of us right now, our primary assignment may be caring for an aging parent. It may be caring for a special needs child. If that is your assignment, it is no less than Esther's. Are you with me? How do you recognize a for such a time as this moment? First clue, it's probably something you would never have chosen for yourself. Second clue, it's something that God did choose for you. It's something that you will probably not be drawn to naturally. And the final way that you tell if it's almost a bullseye replica is it's going to cost you to fulfill that assignment. It may even cost you your life or feel like it. No, there was a significant moment when the queen came to that point and in a matter of moments of a conversation went from marginalizing herself and wanting to stand in the shadows and watch what would happen through someone else to putting herself front and center and saying, if I perish, I perish. Now listen to me carefully. Christian discipleship, obedience, the life of following Christ will always lead us to our, if I perish, I perish moment. And here's the scripture for it. Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you deny yourself, you're dying to yourself. If you take up your cross, you're dying to something. You're identifying with Jesus in a way that cuts across the grain, a way that you would never choose for yourself. We are raising a generation of Christians in our country today that are being spoon-fed baby food and taught that the way of Christianity is easy Follow Christ and you'll make millions and your life will be full of success. That is not the biblical story. Not everyone's book will end like Esther's. Not in this life it won't. But eventually it will. We win in the end. One of the greatest testaments... For the worthiness of Christ are those all around the world who lay down their lives every day for the sake of the gospel. This past year, I have had the privilege and you have sent me to serve the persecuted church around the world. It's one of the most humbling things I've ever done in my life. To serve people that tomorrow they could literally be killed because they're followers of Jesus Christ. It's a reality, and many of them are. Hundreds of thousands this year have died because of their followers of Jesus Christ, and we hardly hear a thing about it. What about them? They didn't win. They didn't get the signet ring of the king. What about them? What about them? They will. Because the last verse hasn't been written yet. The last chapter is still to be penned. So don't think, well, I've missed my moment because I'm not living in a, in a king's palace. I'm not having an influence over nations and changing the shape of the world. 
That's not the point. The point is, what is your assignment? And your assignment is costing you, and it's time to embrace it. Amen? Now, I've saved the best to last. My only regret is that I didn't show you every verse that I've preached from. I didn't because I would get, uh, it would take uh, twice the time, uh, but I would encourage you to take time this afternoon, if you haven't read Esther in the last week or so, to take time to do it. But here's the final point. Is Esther about saving a family or a nation? No. It's about saving the world. Now listen. From the beginning, God called Abraham. It was through Abraham's seed that his son would come. That was the promise. He wasn't going to find another race of people. So what Esther did was not just preserve herself or her family or her nation. She provided a nation that's still here through whom the Messiah would be born who would save the world. Isn't that awesome? Now, God could have done it some other way, but He used her. She saved the family that saved the nation that provided the means by which the Savior of the world would be born. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Amen. It's a fitting capstone to the history books of the Old Testament. There are 17 history books, the first five of Moses, the next 12 that go from Joshua through Esther. So we have now completed the first 17 books of the Old Testament, and we have completed 23 books of the New Testament. Um, We now jump into the poets. One of the most brilliant literary masterpieces is the book we look at next, the book of Job. A lot of people shy away from Job because they don't want that to happen to them. It's almost like a fear of failure. I don't even... Frankly, I used to be that way. I don't want to ever read Job, man. I don't even want to hang out with that guy. Like, you get away from me. Don't you dare stay home with that fear. I will, it will set you free. Job is the book where it says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that He will stand on the earth. It is absolutely a book of triumph and faith and redemption. And then we're going to come to the book of Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and yes, Song of Solomon. You thought this morning with Esther was a little racy? Wait till we get to Song of Solomon. You want to pray for the pastor? If I survive Song of Solomon, I'll live through anything. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.